0: You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simon, I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. I saw last week that people were actually listening to our podcast in a Study With Me stream. Study With Me or Work With Me stream. You know where people go on to Twitch and they do their work and you can just join in because you just need a study or working buddy?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a, a background noise or like you're in a room with somebody.
0: Yes, and they the streamer played our podcast. I forgot their name, unfortunately. But uh, a listener of ours pointed me in that direction. And it was really cool to see. I was really happy. So if you are right now sitting there, maybe in a study with me stream, and you're listening to the show, then hi. <laughs> hi there. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I like
1: that because it's exciting for me because not only was somebody streaming it, but a fan of ours was listening to the stream and and pointed it out to us. So to me, that's two really cool events happening at the same time.
0: Ah, it's a really wonderful feeling. It's really cool if you out there... Basically, engage with us, whether you send a yeah. comment, whether you send an email, whether you share our episode on social media, or if you want to do even more than that, join in making this show happen by joining our Studying Pixels Plus program. Because, yes, we are, we are using a patron campaign to basically finance this. All of our episodes you can get with Studying Pixels Plus entirely ad-free. You will get also a lovely sticker that says "I am studying pixels," and you will get monthly plus episodes. This month we did an episode titled "The Rise and Fall of Visceral Games," where we go through the motions of how a studio that made Dead Space came about and how it was eventually, I would say, crushed by its own creation. It's a really interesting story, a tale that we go through from beginning to end. If you're curious about that, then go to studyingpixels.com/plus.
2: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: In our main story today, we want to talk a little bit about a game that basically has very quickly vanished from cultural consciousness. <laughs> and this is Horizon 2 Forbidden West. Now, two things up front, two disclaimers. First up, we have received a review code from PlayStation in order to talk about this game. That's why we got a head start. We were able to start playing one day early. Still, that's the second disclaimer, I'm doing the review and I'm not entirely finished with the game yet. I've put in roughly 50 hours, so we're going to give our review based on those impressions. And we're also going to talk about the themes that appear in the game. We're going to go into a little bit of analytical depth. Should there at some point in my future playing experience of Horizon come a point where I think we really need to get into this in more depth, then we might proceed and do a spoiler cast at some point in the future. For now, you can rely that we will not give you any big spoilers about Horizon 2 Forbidden West. Instead, we will assess the quality of the game and we will talk about its themes. Dan, have you are you curious about Horizon at all?
1: Yes, very much. I really like uh, the first Horizon, and I've been kind of living in the Elden Ring world for the past couple of weeks. So yeah, <laughs> we so a little uh, inside baseball, listeners. So Stefan took Horizon Forbidden West. I'm taking the helm on Elden Ring because we both have uh, jobs and. Lives outside of video <laughs> games, and when you're dealing with massive open world games, it's best to keep one in your wheelhouse uh, instead of trying to juggle two. Otherwise, I might not have enough to eat. So, <laughs> it's it's <laughs> definitely something that I'm interested in, and I will circle back to. I'm really excited to hear your impressions, though, because I know how excited you were about it and how much fun you've been having with it.
0: It seems that everyone was super excited about Forbidden West for good reasons yeah. because. As you mentioned, Horizon Zero Dawn, which came out in 2017, it really blew people away. It was, it's developed by Guerrilla Games, just as the sequel now. And Guerrilla Games, they are so impressive because they had previously been working on Killzone. So they made first-person shooters. And with Horizon, they transitioned to, let's say, an open-world RPG and a very ambitious one at that. And they did a really good job. Horizon Zero Dawn is basically about a post-apocalypse. It's got the interesting setting. The game is set in the far future, but it seems almost archaic. However, the, basically the entire Earth had been destroyed and rebuilt by an AI and is now roamed by machines that are functionally equivalent to dinosaurs, I would say, in many ways. Dinosaurs huge animals and so on
1: it's a really cool world and i think one of my favorite parts about the first game is that there is that element of mystery that you almost forget about because aloy and her companions are such memorable characters that you you almost you get wrapped up in the the current story and you forget that there's this big mystery backdrop until it kind of comes into it and then you get reinvigorated by it. it's a really great story
0: yeah, over time it always feeds you a little bit more information of what has happened to the world, mm. whether it's like something small, such as, as is the case in Forbidden West as well. Let's say you go, you find some treasure, and then it's like you know an ancient—it says ancient chimes, but actually it's a keychain, you know, yeah. where someone's car keys basically have been left there, <laughs> which you can now use to trade for metal shards and upgrade your character, and. Even the big revelations are well integrated. Those that tell you the story about what actually happened, how the world came to an end and how it had to be rebuilt. Now, Aloy, you mentioned her, is a very, very iconic character. And she continues to be so in Forbidden West. Because now the situation is that in this sequel, a new threat occurs, which is the blight. It's, you could say, an animal, sorry, a plant disease, the blight and the world is infected with it. The world is, in fact, on the brink of destruction. We're going to talk about climate crisis a little bit later on, but it's very similar to that. You've got storms raging, and so on and so forth. Mm. And that's why Aloy, she now turns to the Forbidden West, which is an area that was mentioned in the previous game, but never really shown. And she follows her former companion and kind of I just would describe him as a frenemy because he always like he guides you a little bit at the same time he also is always in opposition to your own goals he's called silence and you follow his call to the forbidden west when now and this is basically the setup for forbidden west you have to reassemble Gaia the AI that rebuilt the world because Gaia needs to save it once more. And she's been split into all of her subfunctions, which are, you know, this is an open world game. All of her subfunctions are all over the place. Yeah, (laughs) Lots of (laughs) things to collect. And the main things to collect are the subfunctions, which you need to then use to reassemble Gaia to prevent the world from extinction. This is pretty much the setup of what you can expect in Forbidden West.
1: One of my favorite things about The first game is that the story hooks you very quickly. Would you say that it's just as quick in the sequel?
0: It is, but only if you have played the previous game. Mm. The big issue is that Horizon Forbidden West very much works like a sequel, it literally begins pretty much exactly where the first game ended. Mm. And the first thing you do is you get like a brief introductory movie that tells the story of the first game in case you... But it's more like, I felt like it's more to refresh your memory rather than to introduce new players to it. Because then afterwards you also immediately interact with characters from the first game and you say goodbye to them and you talk about the things that have happened before you then go on to a new adventure. Silence as a character is also not introduced very thoroughly. So the assumption is that if you want to enjoy this, then you need to have played the first game, and then you can basically immediately sail into Forbidden West, and it has the same kind of quality of, of writing and the same kind of way to hook you and to engage you.
1: I do appreciate that, because a lot of games will try to make the the story comprehensible from the start. But I like when games confront you a little bit and say, well, you really need to know what happened in the last one to get full enjoyment out of this. So we'll give you
0: a recap, but it's not going to be the same as playing it. I think it is a very reasonable choice to make because the first game, Horizon Zero Dawn, is still of such good quality, especially if you play it now on PS5 that you can easily recommend playing Zero Dawn. So if you haven't done that, then I would say, hmm, well, Forbidden West is the better game when it comes to mechanics, when it comes to the graphical fidelity, and so on and so forth. But uh, when it comes to the story, I would say either jump into... Zero Dawn first, and play primarily through the story, or at least watch one of these wonderful YouTube edits where people have (laughs) just assembled the cutscenes and made like a tiny movie out of it. Well, I say tiny, but I mean a six-hour movie out of it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think that's well worth it, because otherwise you might feel a little bit lost. But when it comes to, for example, the moment-to-moment feeling of the game, Mm. I felt immediately in. It's like you swing your spear around, you primarily fight with bow and arrow, and Aloy controls exactly as I remembered her, and you have these same uh, precious ingredients in Forbidden West that were very present and made the first game, Horizon Zero Dawn, so iconic, which is you've got the huge machines that are roaming the land. They are super impressive still. I, I can't believe this moment, it just doesn't get old. When you, let's say you venture through the open world... And then you just, let's say, hunt a rabbit, and uh, then in the distance you see like this bluish glow of, you know, a herd of machines. And so you approach them, you scan them, because there are so many that it's hard to keep track of it. (laughs) You, You scan them and see their strengths, their weaknesses. You look at their individual parts, which you then need to disassemble in combat. And you have to be very thorough and very strategic, because these machines, they are vicious, (laughs) <laughs> I started playing this on the hardest difficulty on Very Hard. I actually turned it down, which is something I don't often do in video games, but I had no choice because these machines, they leap at you from all angles constantly. I felt like, is this, am I already in Elden Ring? <laughs> <laughs> well, we should we should talk
1: about this in a brief aside because we, we talked about this just in our, our normal conversation that sometimes games that are so story heavy, you do feel like, okay, I want to get this high difficulty to experience what the game has to throw at me. But you get so sucked into the world that you say, like, I want to see more and I'm I'm hitting a roadblock here. So I am going to turn down the difficulty so I can just see the game,
0: right? Yeah. It can also feel unfair because often games with difficulty levels and difficulty settings are not really equally well adjusted for each of these difficulty levels.
1: It's a weird horseshoe effect where easy is too easy and hard is way too hard sometimes.
0: Yeah, because if you set it to very hard, these machines are so agile and so vicious that it often, I often was in the situation that I was basically locked into animations where Mm. one machine would throw me to the ground and then it takes a while for Aloy to get back up. In the meantime, three other machines leap at me and I'm dead and it happens so often. Even though I would consider myself to be a fairly decent player, right? I was never bad at playing Horizon. But then I I thought, no, that's it's a little bit too much for me. I'll set it down to hard, which is now, I would say, a relatively good balance. That's good. I also want to praise the Forbidden West itself. A vast array, a huge map at the very beginning of the game. You are in this intermediate, in this transitional space of the dawned. This in itself would already work as an open world map, but then it opens up and it's even bigger. It's so big and it's so versatile. We're talking snowy mountains. We're talking uh, dry deserts, jungle areas, underwater areas that you can explore. Mm. It's just absolutely massive. This is something that I would say is a praise of the game because it prides itself on you standing on a cliff and looking over the vast landscape before you and have this sublime sensation of realizing how small and insignificant everything is and also how important the existence of the planet earth as such is i really appreciated that
1: in the first game like i mentioned this sort of they do such a great uh, a a great balance of intrigue and import. And it's what I mean by that is that you can get lost in the moment-to-moment uh situations that you find yourself in and forget that there's this greater story, this greater mystery, to the point where you you almost start thinking to yourself, well, if I were to exist in this world, I would be focused on the day-to-day. I wouldn't be thinking, what is this great mystery that's causing all of these machi- these dinosaur machines to roam around? One of my favorite things about Zero Dawn is the way that the people talk about the machines. It's just part of the world. There's no sense that it's this other force that is alien. It's just, oh, there are animals and there are machines and they work differently and we have to kind of live around them, you know? And I think that to have those moments where you kind of get lost in the world and realize that this is just how these people live, it's a hard thing to pull off and I think, I know the first game does it really well. It sounds like Forbidden West does it even
0: better to a certain extent. I would say so. It does make you care about all of the different tribes and Mm. people that live in this world as well. Like in the Forbidden West, you now have the people of the Tanakh, which are, let's say, you could say they're a little bit more tribal, quite a lot more tribal than the previous people and populations you have encountered. And they are also severely stigmatized and marginalized. They're kind of from the perspective of the people in the first game, in the area of the first game, they are the other. They are the the wild people. They are very stigmatized in many ways. And as you get to find out, some of these stigmata certainly are true. There are certain things about it that um, where you would immediately feel uh, like this is wrong, this is not right, like where you have a kind of moral imperative uh, to intervene. But at the same time, you also learn to appreciate their ways. And this is something that I find very interesting. If you put these things together, the admiration for the vastness of the world on the one hand, and the care for the people that inhabit this world, then what you get is actually the kind of care for the existence of the planet that very much draws into the themes of the game about which we're going to talk in a minute. I think it comes together very well. Like the the beauty of the world is not just it just doesn't stand on its own. Like, this is just a thing to look at. But it's also a thing to care for. Right. I think that makes it very very precious. And, of course, Aloy herself is also a super interesting character. I don't need to elaborate too much on that. Uh, Aloy, w- who is voiced by Ashley Birch, does a fantastic job just as much as many of the other characters you encounter. I was surprised to find that there are, of course, these rando NPCs you find that are basically just like... Ah, good morning, Huntress. (laughs) And then it's over, basically. But they're they're also, even the more insignificant NPCs with whom you can properly interact, even they are well-voiced and well-acted for the most part. It all feels very organic and very believable. That's not even to speak about things we don't have time to go into, such as the, the wonderful musical orchestration that accompanies your exploration of the world, the wide range of accessibility options, and many other tiny features that make this game very enjoyable. Mm. These are all things, though, that have been present in the first game already. right? So this is not something truly out of the ordinary. Now, let's get a little bit into the specifics of Forbidden West. There's an expansive skill tree that you can unlock. The thing is, Completely overwhelming. (laughs) Is it more expensive than the first one? I think so. If I recall correctly, yes. The thing is that now the idea is to give you more versatility, more flexibility in the way you want to play. So you can now unlock combos for your spear. In the second game, it was very focused on bow and arrow. And um, it's still the case in Forbidden West. But they just try to give you more options. The good thing about it is, though, for everything who's a little bit, you know, let's say, obsessive about unlocking everything, mm. that you can do that. And I personally found that soothing. You can place an emphasis early on, but eventually you'll get enough skill points to unlock all of the skills. That's nice.
1: I, I always feel a little alienated by games that... Because I, as you know, I love grinding in games. And yeah. And so... I do love the feeling of unlocking everything, and I always get a little cagey when there's that element of choice. So it's nice to know, like the first game, you can unlock everything if you want.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's how it is in Forbidden West as well. I really like that, that they don't force you to basically choose whether you want to be good at shooting bow and arrow or fighting with your spear, but just saying, what do you want to develop early on? Everything else is going to come afterwards. I also really love, I want to emphasize this particular point. In many ways, the game feels pretty similar to Zero Dawn. But there is an element that really surprised me, and that is the ancient ruins. Now, this is not what, is, what the cauldrons are in the first game. The cauldrons are kind of like, you know, ancient caves that are basically, at the same time, very futuristic, and they give you unlocks to override machines. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about smaller ruins you stumble upon in the open world, and they act like small puzzle areas. Hmm. It might sound a bit random, like, um, okay, so basically just small uh, Breath of the Wild shrines. I was going to say,
1: the shrines, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: a little bit like that. A little bit like that. All of these are like only environmental puzzles, mm. but they are really well done. They have beautiful musical themes. They integrate naturally into the world. So it's not like in Breath of the Wild where you enter a separate area, but you just stumble upon them. And then Aloy goes kind of like, oh, I wonder what this is. Maybe I can find a way in. And then you can walk towards it and you find a crate here or you can pull a wall open there and you just wiggle your way through. Sometimes these things, mm. they can actually take, I would say, they can easily take 20 minutes if you you need to think a little bit about some of these things. And really beautiful way to engage you with this environment and its history. Because usually in these ancient ruins you find code, like a like, uh, Coded messages, images that indicate what this once was. You explore an old train station, for example, where you have to then find a rusty train cart that you need to shove in order to climb on top somewhere. Really beautiful. Very well done. There's also a whole lot more of stuff that I'm just going to briefly go through that I found interesting, such as you now have a lot more emphasis on underwater exploration. I haven't mentioned this, I haven't heard this mentioned much in reviews. But uh, I was quite surprised the first time I jumped into the water in Forbidden West to find that there's a very vibrant underwater world to explore.
1: Now I have to ask because we are both we are both gamers, and there is a we mentioned stigma before. There is a stigma with underwater uh, combat exploration. How does it feel? Is it do you look forward to it, or is it a slog when you get to it?
0: You look forward to it because it's those are relatively short passages and there's no elaborate combat underwater, at least uh, in these first 50 hours that I have played now. (laughs) It's more (laughs) like... Safe to assume. (laughs) It's safe to assume that they're not going to introduce that. But it's more like an exploration of old uh, ruins and drowned caves that you can go into. Uh, There are also some quests tied to it where you need to specifically dive deeply into an old wreck. Oh, fun. So it is really interesting. And this goes for most of the new additions you now got a grappling hook, they call it pull caster, which is, it's a boring grappling hook, but it is one, you know. Sure, <laughs> a, sure, A grappling hook, you can never go wrong with a grappling hook. It's not one where you can just shoot it anywhere and swing around. It's got specific points that it can anchor to. You also got a shield wing glider, where you basically have this kind of You know, we're talking Breath of the Wild here. You have this glider. Yeah. Yeah. You have this glider. It's very, very practical. It liberates your mobility a little bit in comparison to the first game because wherever you climb on, you can just jump off and glide a little bit through the area towards your next destination. But there are also some things that I found a little bit more or that I'm on the fence about. For example, there are more elemental effects now. There's, in addition to, previously you had like fire, ice, shock, and such things. Now you've got acid, purge, water, and plasma. (laughs) The thing is,
1: (laughs) I think I know where you're going with this. I feel like such an old man because when I play a game that has all those options, like I, okay, this is the great thing about from software games is that there's incredible customization. But if you want to work with like a a very specific build, you're able to do that. I find myself, the older I get, being very overwhelmed with a bunch of mechanics. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It might be that that's what I'm feeling as well. Don't you just feel like, oh, I, I wish I wish I could just use my bow for everything, the normal bow, and I wish that it was as effective. And I know you, part of you is saying, I know this game is really complicated and complex and I can do all these amazing things, but I
0: just want to hit something. <laughs> it's so true what you say. It reflects exactly my perception, my overall perception of the game even, I would say. The mm. attitude that they seemingly had when developing this is, People really loved what we did in the first game. It was really great. So what if we make just more? We make everything more. We make more elemental effects, more weapons. Like now you got in addition to your your previous set of weapons, all of which you still have. I, I don't mean that, you, that they transfer over, but all of these weapon types exist in Forbidden West as well. You've got shredders. You've got like kind of throw things and it's all so specific. Yeah. With all the different outfits and specific, like, you know, coils and weaves that you can use to equip it. It's just too much. I'm sorry, but it's making more of something good doesn't necessarily make it better. It just means that I'm going through this game and I'm thinking, oh, okay, another weapon. Uh, Probably not going to use it ever, you know, throw it in the inventory. The gold
1: standard for these kinds of games is and will be for a while Breath of the Wild, right? And yeah. I think that what Breath of the Wild gets so right is that the the power creep, to use a Dragon Ball Z term, <laughs> the power creep of those weapons feels very natural to the point where somebody like my brother, Matt, who's a master of Breath of the Wild, can run over to Hyrule Castle, get all the best weapons, and feel very comfortable using all of them. But you can also be someone like me, who's not as skilled as my brother, Matt, and latch on to a particular type of weapon and say oh this spear is better than the last spear and i really like using spears i'm just going to look for these kinds of spears with a game like i remember zero dawn does this too that kind of um almost like i don't know if it's like diablo just this kind of or borderlands you know this feeling of all these different tiered weapons drop and you have to invest so much time in figuring out what the best version of each tier is. And I don't know something about it. I know that's appealing to people, but for me, I would much rather there be like four weapon types and you naturally find out what the best version of that weapon type is and seek that out. That's more fun to me.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I play games exactly the same way that you do because I just know that not all of these weapons have a meaningful function in the game. You just... There's there's so many different weapons. And, of course, you can tweak your build and make it very exact. But then you have to do all this kind of micromanagement. All the inventory management. Yeah, all the inventory management. You don't have enough space in your weapon wheel to even equip each type of weapon. Not to say then each elemental type, because you need to yeah. do elemental damage. And yeah. Something. That I just... To me, it feels overwhelming. And I think... Just leave it out. Just let. I want to feel the satisfaction when I get a new weapon that this will really either make me stronger, make me more powerful, or that it will change the way that I engage with the combat. But in Forbidden West, it's more like I get a new weapon and I think... Uh, if uh, do you really want to think about leveling up this weapon now as well even though I'm mostly never going to use it? Ah, just leave it. Sell it at the next vendor. There's something...
1: <laughs> the, yeah, right. There's something so satisfying in Breath of the Wild because you know that everything is finite. So even if you have a full inventory, you can say, alright, I'm going to use all these weapons on this camp of moblins or whatever and get rid of them so that I can find cooler stuff. I think the problem, and I had this with Zero Dawn, it sounds like you're having it with forbidden west is that you just it it just feels like you're carrying trash (laughs) around the entire time and you're looking for a vendor to sell all of it to get things so that you can maybe upgrade the weapon you're using but that to me just feels like inflated time sink
0: Ah, that is the biggest problem of forbidden west Mm. unfortunately we're talking about a game that has a as we said beautiful gorgeous and even thematically meaningful open world that at the same time follows the rigid Ubisoft formula. This is something that Zero Dawn has already done in its time, and it was great. To be fair, and it still is, Forbidden West is the best adaptation of the Ubisoft formula that I've seen to date. I would say, If you want to go out and play an Assassin's Creed game, then I would say don't. Don't do it because... (laughs) Play Forbidden West. (laughs) (laughs) Play Forbidden West. It does pretty much exactly what Assassin's Creed does, but a whole lot better. At the same time, the formula is still getting stale. For me especially, it's just getting stale. I'm sorry if I sound complaining about this, but the map is cluttered with items. uh, Sorry, with icons. The map is cluttered with icons at all times, and you've got a long list in your quest log of various different quests and things to do. So that basically, uh, you either you actively ignore the stuff, or you go through it, but then you have to bring a whole lot of time and patience. It's not that any of these activities are boring, but doing them all is just, it can feel tedious, overwhelming, and sometimes even discouraging, because you realize like, oh God, all of these all of these question marks on the map. (laughs) I just want to, I just want to walk around and enjoy the wilderness, you know? So I've, I've played, uh, Assassin's
1: Creed up through the third one. And then the ending of that one made me say enough of this already. I'm through with it. (laughs) Um, but I will say that it took me a while to get through them. And I had to shift my mindset because I have, I have such, uh, completionism in me that I realized I would never finished the story of those games if I focused on all of the different icons that are available because it's just a time suck. And so I, I, f- I remember feeling that was Zero Dawn too, where I said, I'm not going to pay attention to the side stuff. I just want to play the story so that I can see what this world is about. Then if I'm interested in that, I'll go back and do all of that to clean it up. That's frustrating in these open world games because on the one hand, you say to yourself, well, the point of the open world is to be complex and massive but it's so distracting and so (laughs) micromanage-y when you want to go through the game and see what the broader strokes of it have to offer
0: yeah and especially one thing that i miss a bit in forbidden west is an aspect of simulation Mm. the thing is it is really in many ways so similar to assassin's creed even down to the point that when you for example stumble upon a herd of machines and you defeat them in an impressive combat and then you salvage their parts and you're happy and you move on to the next area. Let's say you go up a mountain and then you look down you look back and that herd is it's back. (laughs) It's Ah. just there again. It's like there's no there, there are very few moments in the game where you actually have a properly lasting impact on these things that all of these moments are story tied and I just wish there was a bit more of a sense of this is actually a world that changes according to my actions it does not change it is beautiful though and I think uh, the photo mode is one thing that I really want to highlight it's a, an excellent photo mode I could just walk through Forbidden West all day and just take pictures because it's mm. just so gorgeous and the photo mode gives you all kinds of options to tweak and they also implemented another thing that they borrowed from other open world games, such as Assassin's Creed or The Witcher. They now have their own mini game that you can play. So much game. So much <laughs> game to play. Yeah. yeah. And this mini game, uh, maybe we should one day do an episode on the best mini games or the worst mini games. Maybe the best and the worst mini games. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Final Fantasy VIII. <laughs> <laughs> and this one is called Machine Strike. It's a little bit. I'm not going to say too much on it about it, but it's basically like a kind of chess equivalent. It's a board game that you play, and you can assemble different pieces. You can collect these pieces, and then you can defeat opponents. Uh, really fun, really well crafted. It even gives you skill points, so it's worth doing when you play through it. At least the first three beginner boards you should definitely uh, try out. Uh, but yeah, it gives another another time sink, another part that just eats away on your time. And if I may say one thing briefly on the, on the aspect of fidelity, Forbidden West prides itself on its technical accomplishments. Sure. And I think, I think rightfully so. That world is, considering how vast it is, how beautiful it is, how the, the weather effects, the snow, the rain, the wind. Yesterday I had a situation where I walked through a forest on a bright day, and all of a sudden it got a little bit cloudy and the wind blew strongly through the gra- grass and through the trees. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> it's a really stunning sensation. At the same time, there are evident flaws that I think also need to be mentioned. The climbing that you have is a little bit clumsy. its I mentioned this in my first impressions already a couple of episodes ago, that you now have the situation that The climbing routes are displayed to you once you trigger a focus, and it can feel a little bit limiting. It is also the case that there are quite a lot of issues such as glitches and clipping through the ground. You do a sneak attack, a stealth attack on an enemy, and suddenly you glitch a little bit in the ground and you hang strangely in the air while the animation (laughs) plays out, you know, such things. And the worst thing is lots of aliasing. Pixels everywhere. Sometimes I'm a bit befuddled, because you see like a storm uh, in the distance, and that storm is beautiful, but when you get closer to it, you see it's just like a pixel chunk, and I sometimes wonder, is that intentional, or didn't they have the time to, you know, to make it a little bit more granular?
1: Say what you will about the Assassin's Creed franchise. My favorite thing about it is that they had the built-in excuse that the game wasn't glitching, the animus was. (laughs)
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> got you there. <laughs> it's interesting that both of these games. Now that you mention it, Assassin's Creed as well as Horizon, both of these games are in a set in a very artificial world. In Assassin's Creed, it's a complete simulation, and in Horizon, it is basically a world rebuilt by an AI. Interesting. I think that point may bring us to the more, let's say, uh, political and social themes that run through the Forbidden West. Because one of the strengths of the game is definitely that it is very open and willing to address political themes explicitly. Whereas Ubisoft always basically hides away as soon as someone mentions even the word politics.
1: We're going to have a game set during the French Revolution, but yeah,
0: we don't want to talk about politics at all. (laughs) There's (laughs) nothing to do with politics. And Forbidden West is quite the opposite of that. They make political implications constantly and very explicitly. Maybe the most implicit point that they make is regarding diversity. Forbidden West has an impressively diverse cast of characters. Truly, these are characters that are self-evidently implemented and where you can sense that their gender, their sexuality, their skin color, all of these things are of little significance. It is very refreshing that you can play a character such as Aloy. Um, she was already like that in the first game. She was already a little bit of a, I want to say, feminist icon in some ways because she's not sexualized. Like you can't uh, look up her skirt or she doesn't wear... She wears sometimes like revealing outfits, but only where it's also practical and, and makes sense in the game, you know? The tribe that
1: Aloy is a part of originally, it's very... Um, the Nora. It's very mother-centric. Yes, yeah, the Nora matriarchy. Yeah. And they, it's not, it's just taken for granted that that's how this tribe came together. And I think that that's something that I really appreciated in the first game is that, look, we're in the far future. Survival is really the most important thing for all of these different tribes. So they have their different cultures. Everybody's working together in this sense. And it's, it's just taken for granted that you are who you are and you're bringing your Your
0: skills to the group yeah Yeah. your skills are kind of what centrally matters Aloy she is a character this might not sound significant if she was male then it would be kind of okay uh, random but since she's a female character and if we want to specifically focus on that then we can acknowledge that she can be a bit douchey (laughs) <laughs> she can be she, yes. She can yeah, she can be yeah. douchey. She can be impatient with people. She's just like, oh, what do you want? It's like, you know, this kind of Well, and in and in fairness to her, right? She
1: was outcast since birth. So she grew up a total outsider and no one
0: appreciated her at all. So it's it's kind of like, all right, yeah, I would be douchey too if, if I were Aloy. <laughs> the situation is even worse for her in Forbidden West because she's trying to save the world. She's literally trying to save the planet from extinction. While at the same time, everyone else has kind of their own bubbles where they're like, yeah, we need to fight a war. And, uh, you know, and they're like, I, I don't want to... She's like, I, I don't want to be part of your war. I-, I need to save the world, you know. Frankly, i got more important things to do. Do your own stuff. And then she's kind of still coerced into doing it, of course. But she doesn't need to be the super charming, all appealing, pretty lady. She's Aloy and she's beloved as a character for that. I understand that for some people, Aloy might come come off as a little bit, well, off-putting. But I actually find that very cool that she's a character who doesn't always have to try and appeal to everyone all the time. It also dives into several other matters that are a little bit more tangentially related to the main themes. It goes into refugees. It goes into all kinds of political implications. There is very much at the beginning, there's a mission where um a tribe of refugees are blocking the path to a valuable machine part that uh, people want to harvest. And then the question is how do we get the refugees to get out of there? And they are threatened to basically be, yeah, beaten to a pulp by this uh yeah, by the by the rulers of the area, and you have to intervene. Of course there's the overall arching overarching theme of extinction, and uh, very much I would say Uh, metaphorically related to climate crisis. You literally have a, a long conversation with Gaia where she explains to you that storms are raging, the plants are having a disease, things are really malfunctioning on this planet here, and we need to do something because actually we only got several months, a couple of months really, and then the path is set. Then we're running into extinction. We wouldn't want that, so we need to intervene now. It has this sense of urgency that is very relatable to our political situation at the moment i feel
1: as you described aloy i think that's how a lot of us feel with climate change right when you have this sort of huge looming threat over you and when you run into people who are having petty political squabbles you just you want to say uh, what about what about the world what about you know this huge thing that's threatening to destroy all of us so it's interesting that you need a character like Aloy to have that story because she's capable of helping people, but also being kind of begrudging and and leaving them by saying, listen, there's this bigger thing that's happening. So I'm going to help you now, but you need to be on track with me because this is a really huge problem that
0: we're going to be facing. Yeah. She's very much an Aloy for future character. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) It's just the omnipresent thing that made me think about climate change time and time again, whether it's, You enter a desert town and the problem, you know how it is in role-playing games. You come into a town and they kind of have their problems and then you get a whole lot of quests. And in this situation, the problem is just that the desert town is running low on water. The water supply is no longer functioning. So obviously, you know, a very relatable problem when you think of climate change. Another town has been completely extinguished by a huge mudslide. These Mm. are things that Basically pervade the entire game, not only in its main story, but in the entire exploration. Wherever you go, you see patches of plants affected by the blight. You're constantly reminded, this world is coming to an end, and you need to do something about Mm. it. And the most important thing, and this is the last point when it comes to themes that I've noted down. Forbidden West, it really explores thoroughly the way in which people produce knowledge about the world. Interesting. We mentioned that in the first game, in Zero Dawn, you have this kind of dynamic where you start off and you are basically, uh, you're an outcast and you are in the mindset of the people that live on this live in this world until you slowly and gradually obtain a secret knowledge yeah. that allows you to change things for the better. So the f- central question for Zero Dawn was really what happened to the world as we know it. If I play that game, then I think, what happened in between now and the fiction of Zero Dawn. In the Forbidden West, this is different because you start off and you already have all of this knowledge. Aloy, she has her focus on the side of her ear and that, I would say, it privileges her. It's an epistemological privilege or an epistemic privilege because she knows things about the world, sees things about the world that other people cannot see. She says literally, quote, I can see things nobody else can, end quote. You often have these interactions in the game where someone is like, oh yeah, I found this weird box at a, at a vendor and I heard the voices of the old ones and what they might have to tell us. And then Aloy is just like scanning it with a focus and it's like the black box of a military airplane that crashed there like hundreds of years ago. Yeah. This is an interesting contrast because on the one hand, you have an understanding of the old ones, which basically would be us nowadays. <laughs> right. The old ones and, and the world, how it was, from a very religious or let's say at least mythological perspective. Because these people, they don't really know what happened. So they have their own explanations for things. They consider there's a tribe called the Utaru. The Utaru, I, I really loved them as soon as I came into their territory. They're like kind of peaceful, um, and they're very much naturalists. They praise the machines as land gods. Uh, they emphasize this living in harmony, in harmony with nature. The planet is what feeds you, and so you, when you die, feed the planet. All in harmony. <laughs> they love to sing, and I noticed that uh, they call their land gods, these big machines, by notes. There's like, there's re, me, fa, and so on. Oh, interesting. And it's it's all emphasized around this, This concept of harmony, Forbidden West is really smart in that way. If you want to dive deeply into this, then it gives you a lot of analytical potential. Mm. The way they see the world is completely different from the way that Aloy sees the world because she looks at things, she analyzes the machines, she sees the corruptions, and she wants to try and help these people, but she has a completely different position of knowledge, right? right? And this is sometimes complicated because she needs to go against the hierarchies and rituals and principles of these naturalists to fix things with her own uh, technological understanding. Just mini example, there's a cave to which the land gods, so the machines, go once a year and then they come back and they are like refresh and, and fit and can go for another year. That's what the see, and this, that's why this cave is sacred and must not be entered by humans. But for Aloy, it's like, well, there's something corrupting your machines and then I need to go in and fix it, basically. It's like a virus, you know. <laughs> I need to take a
1: look at that. How do you explain that to a group of people who think this particular way? Right. You either have to yeah. you either have to adjust your conversation to fit what they're saying, or you have to take you have to take the really uh exhaustive route of teaching them everything you know. And I think that one of the cool things about She sounds like a bodhisattva in this way, where she she's basically having to do use expedient means to teach everybody she comes in. Like, okay, I have to rethink and refocus how am I going to approach these people with the knowledge that I'm cursed with? I have to speak to them like they're speaking to me and explain these things in a way that makes sense to them. That's a really interesting thing to explore in a video game because we have knowledge that even Aloy doesn't have. And to manipulate her to
0: get these things done
1: is an interesting transfer of that, of our own knowledge, right?
0: I would say we mostly are in the perspective of Aloy for, for what it's worth because we experience the entire world from her perspective, but you're very much right in that there is a crucial epistemological difference between the people that inhabit the world and between Aloy and players. The point is just so clear that Horizon makes because they're, are situations where she tries to go through with whatever the hierarchies and structures of the people are. And she has, over time, she develops genuine respect for them. She engages also in the way their cultures function. At the same time, she also picks people and equips them with this kind of knowledge. Very early on, this is actually, this happens directly at the beginning of the game, she gives one of her companions also a focus. And it happens several times throughout the game that she equips other people and says, like, here, put this on your ear. And then you can see the world from a completely different angle. And it's overwhelming. And you're not going to be able to understand at first what's going on because you all this time thought that this kind of flickering light here is a vision. But actually, it's like an old hologram that's a little bit defective, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And I think this kind of idea, it's very, um, it's a very strong emphasis of enlightenment. We take this kind of knowledge, this kind of understanding, and we spread it among people. It's much to the disadvantage of religious narratives, because the point that it makes about religious narratives and mystic narratives is just that they are they are interpretations due to the lack of knowledge, kind of. It's just believing in God is just lacking the knowledge that God actually is just an AI, basically.
1: You run the risk of having the mystique removed from your life when you feel that you have a deeper understanding of certain things. And it's smart of Forbidden West to say, well, Aloy's understanding is literally technical about the things that are happening in the world. It's literally machines. And there's something to the fact of you're seeing through the code of the matrix, if you want, you know, to the, to the reality of things. And it, it becomes kind of mundane, right? And I think that the risk you run when you start seeing things that way is that the world becomes cynical and things start to lose their luster. And so the real challenge of, a, of living a life like that, I think, is to move past that mundanity and to see the beauty in even that. And it seems like that may be the point of Forbidden West, if I'm reaching a little.
0: She has a epistemic privilege when it comes to knowing how the the let's say what goes on behind the curtain she can look into these domains that seem completely intransparent to the people that live there on the other hand she's also epistemically disprivileged or underprivileged when it comes to the actual life in the forbidden west because Mm. this is a new tribal land with cultures that have their own proceedings she needs to learn about their rituals she needs to learn what it means that people just paint their faces and bodies and basically use that as a means to tell the story of their life and the lives lives around them. So she is also an outsider. And in order to prevent that kind of cynicism you just mentioned, her big the big growth of her character is to understand and acknowledge the workings of these tribes and try and help them as best she can. That, I think is a profoundly encouraging message. It's atheist, certainly. It's a message that emphasizes enlightenment and reason, definitely. Mm. But also, at the same time, empathy, understanding, and genuine intrigue and curiosity about cultures that might seem foreign or alien to you. I think that's beautiful.
1: I think... I'll tell you, nowadays, Stefan, any story that de-emphasizes cynicism... I I think cynicism is, it's my least favorite quality um, Mm. in in anything, people, stories, and any story that is unabashedly uncynical or anti-cynical really warms my heart. So I'm glad to hear that that's the arc for Aloy, because I think the risk you run when you have a character who knows more than other people is that they become kind of a jerk.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is totally the trajectory of Forbidden West. And this is also the reason why I would say, definitely play this game. Mm. I know that at the moment, Elden Ring is omnipresent. Yeah. And I know that throughout this review, I mentioned several flaws and problems of Horizon Forbidden West. That being said, I think this means if you want to properly get into this game, then Take your time, because, as I said, caring about this world, learning about the different people, the tribes, reading through logs and doing side quests, these are ways in which Aloy gradually becomes a part of a world. And this is what makes this kind of epistemical difference work in favor of the game's theme. So I think the game is really made, and this exploration and care for the world is deeply imbued into its graphical fidelity, into its beauty, but also into all the things you do in this world in order to become part of it, to inhabit this world, and eventually, well, obviously, try and prevent its extinction. (laughs) So yeah, once Elden Ring is over, (laughs) you know what you can do? You know what you can do? You can purchase the PS4 version of the game. There's a tiny secret tip here at the end, because originally Sony planned to sell you an upgrade uh, for Forbidden West. If you purchased the PS4 version, you would need to shell out an additional $10 in order to upgrade to the PS5 version. But due to a controversy, they basically went back on that and... uh, Now you can get the PS4 version and you will then have both PS4 and PS5 version of Forbidden West. I totally recommend playing that maybe once the entire Elden Ring hype is over. That's what I'll be doing. Uh, As soon as,
1: uh, yeah, Elden Ring and then this new Final Fantasy game, this Forbidden West seems like a nice, uh, from everything we've talked about, I'm very excited about it.
0: Ah, Final Fantasy is also on the horizon. On the horizon. (laughs) (laughs) So much for... Silly word plays. <laughs> and with that, I would say let's move on and do some side questing, huh? Yes, let's do it.
2: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. to get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
0: Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. As you know in our side quests we venture through the internet and bring all kinds of stories that we find interesting and relevant. We share our own impressions of video games that we've played, except for the one that was just part of the main story obviously. And uh, we obviously also put all the links with all the information that we gathered into the show notes. Number one, we need to tend once more to the ongoing invasion of Russia. Into the Ukraine because further video game companies are withdrawing from the market, and this conflict or this invasion keeps having an impact on the global economy but also on the video game industry. First of all, just briefly, because I find it important to mention this, there are severe consequences that the Ukraine people are facing at the moment. In the first 12 days since the invasion, two million people are fleeing over, I think, over 1 million are outside of the country and uh, almost another million is fleeing but still within the country or trying to flee within the country or even worse, unable to flee because they are surrounded by Russian forces. There's also a rising death toll, 1,335 civilian casualties so far according to the United Nations Human Rights Office. Meanwhile, the entire world seems to be penalizing Russia for this invasion. Most prominently, we've seen uh, sanctions by pretty much every country on the planet. Not every country, but most countries.
1: Basically, though, yeah.
0: And high-profile companies withdrawing their businesses, such as Apple, Google, Nike, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and many more. One thing that we might want to mention, because I think we actually forgot to do so, in our reference of Studying Pixels Plus is that we are going to donate our entire revenue from Studying Pixels Plus of March 2022 to the Red Cross Ukraine. So if you want to help out there, then it might be a good opportunity to jump in and subscribe to Studying Pixels Plus. You can cancel immediately if you want, and then you only pay one pledge, and we will take that pledge and entirely donate it collectively with all the pledges we get to Red Cross Ukraine. And you can obviously then use this kind of month that you have to listen into the Plus episodes and see whether they are for you. Mm. As we reported, there are also a whole lot of video game companies that are withdrawing their businesses. Microsoft, Nintendo, Sony, Ubisoft, Activision Blizzard, EA, CD Projekt Red, Epic Games, Take-Two, and many more are suspending their physical and digital sales in Russia Just a brief example, and I know you have another one, Dan, in just a second. A statement from Sony that they posted on Instagram reads as follows, quote, Sony Interactive Entertainment joins the global community in calling for peace in Ukraine. We have suspended all software and hardware shipments, the launch of Gran Turismo 7 and operations of the PlayStation Store in Russia. To support humanitarian aid, Soli Group Corporation announced a U.S. 2 million, uh, sorry, U.S. 2 million, a 2 million <laughs> U.S. dollar donation to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and the international NGO Save the Children to support the victims of this tragedy, end quote. So this means, this is actually, uh, this has a huge impact, I feel. If we think, like we're on a, on a video game podcast, so we're not going to talk about like the entire implications. But when we think about video game culture, shutting down these stores means no new games can be purchased whatsoever. People can't get video game consoles anymore in Russia. This country and the people in this country are uh, increasingly isolated as a consequence of the war that their own government has brought about.
1: We live in the 21st century, of course, so it's not just sanctions on food and material goods. It's also on entertainment at this point. So I do think that it's a big, we talked about this last week. um, And I think that it's a, it's more than a gesture uh, that these companies are taking this stance because the world we live in, uh, if you want to affect change, you affect people's wallets and you affect their free time. And this, the video game industry affects both of those pretty heavily.
0: I must say, I always feel a bit ambivalent about this. I think the sanctions are very much warranted, and I think the steps that companies take at the moment are super important. At the same time, I'm also aware that there are many people in Russia who do not support the war. We know that there are basically popularity assessments where seemingly over 60% of the Russian population supports this quote, military operation, end quote. I just rolled my eyes. <laughs> yeah, th- these things are not really reliable in an authoritarian regime. We can only know that at least not everyone in Russia supports this war, and they are suffering from this isolation as well, from this, let's say, cultural isolation. Um, I, we also must acknowledge the fact that there are people who might be, for example, video game streamers who make their living, by engaging with video game culture, who are now cut off from it. And we must see that many Russian people have also been under the oppression and suffering from this authoritarian government for quite a while. I'm not saying that this makes these these, uh, withdrawals and these sanctions wrong. I'm just saying that we need to be aware uh, that this also has implications for people in Russia that oppose this war. A very complicated issue we need to do something and sanctions and such withdrawals from companies always hurt the people it's hard you can you can hardly go to putin himself because uh, he will probably not care all too much about whether he can purchase a ps5 now or not <laughs> you know <laughs> i should say
1: as a disclaimer right i'm not i'm not a uh, a political genius by any stretch you know i'm i'm fairly ignorant to a lot of the different issues that go on here. But I will say that when thinking about the people in Russia, right, uh, obviously my, my heart goes out to the people in Ukraine because of this abhorrent thing that's happening. But I'm reminded of something you said in our very first episode, Stefan, where we were talking about the dangers of pushing people into the role that we're ascribing to them. And I do think that it's something to keep in mind that, as you say, not every Russian is in support of this. We can't know the number because the the polls and the surveys are less than reliable, I would say, but it's just the truth that this is not a full support uh, issue that's happening over there. And so when these things are over, hopefully sooner rather than later, I think
0: that's something to keep in the back of our minds. I think that's really important to actively think about relatively soon what what can be done in order to allow people in Russia access to cultural and informational participation. Mm. Especially considering that you've just quoted you've just quoted me and that reminded me of my own stance. And yeah. it reminded me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for. Oh, you're very reminding welcome. me of a good my stance. opinion, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and and that I, of course, we have to consider that the Russian propaganda apparatus works tirelessly in order yeah. to tell people that there's been like a genocide going on, and that they need to get rid of the Nazis wherever they might find them, in the Ukrainian government. But uh, wow, very complicated matter, and I just I, I don't want to say that the sanctions are right or wrong. I think that they are necessary at the moment, mm-hmm. and I think that we have to just be aware of their effects in the future and what we can potentially do to also support those people that are in opposition of this authoritarian government in Russia. Number two, you have one that ties more or less directly into this. This is an article, quick article by Ash Parish on The Verge,
1: um, and it's not a very meaty article, but Nintendo has delayed the uh, release of an Advance Wars um, re-release. So Nintendo of America tweeted this on March 9th. In light of recent world events, we have made the decision to delay Advance Wars 1 and 2 Reboot Camp, which was originally scheduled to release on Nintendo Switch on April 8th. Please stay tuned for updates on a new release date. So for those of you unaware, Stefan, do you know about Advanced Wars? Did you ever play that on the Game Boy? I've heard of it, but I've never played it myself. I played it quite a bit when I was a kid. It's fun. Um, and it's, a, it's you know, it's like a military strategy kind of game. It's not very, you know, true to life. But it's, uh, I think, as, as they would say online, bad optics to release a game about war right now. Yeah. Yep. And... No, the important thing here is that they didn't say because of the situation in Ukraine, we find it would be in bad taste. They just say because of recent world events, we're going to delay it. Now, the thing about this was that it was delayed once before because it wasn't completely finished. So we just talked about cynicism. The cynic in me would say, okay, Nintendo, you're maybe taking this as an excuse to finish this game up a little bit or polish it. I don't know that that's the case. It may be a distinction without a difference because they are releasing this later to kind of avoid the morass that would be releasing a war game <laughs> right now. Um but the other thing that's brought up in this article is that the eShop is currently down in Russia. But it's not super clear if that was a deliberate decision on Nintendo's part to have a stance in this or if it's just that the ruble deflation is causing a lot of issues with purchases. So I, I don't know, I don't know what's happening there, but I think the important thing is that as of now, Nintendo hasn't taken a stance, which I understand they're a big company. They want to remain maybe neutral, but with all the other companies kind of coming out and saying something, it seems a little odd, doesn't it? I was about to say,
0: uh, nice try being neutral in this matter. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I just think, you know, we, we kind of give Nintendo a lot of, uh, I don't know. We give them a lot of trash on this podcast sometimes because of certain decisions they make. And I would just say, this is a good situation to have a stance on, I would say. So nice that they're doing these things, but they seem a little coincidental to me.
0: We can never know their motive unless they release some kind of clearly phrased statement. Exactly. I think that is, if I understand you correctly, exactly what you would desire. The actions that they take all go in the right direction. The question is just, are they coming from the right place? Or are they just simply a mere calculation? Because often companies that do make these statements and that withdraw their businesses from Russia, for them, it's actually an economic disadvantage to do so. Because yeah, if the PlayStation Store is down in Russia, then that means they're not going to make any money from Russia. I don't know regarding the currency and so on, but it's a big market, right? The Russian video game market is pretty big. Oh, yeah. Yeah. These companies
1: are not doing this lightly. The whole thing with Nintendo is that at a certain point, you just go, yeah, okay that that tracks with with how you handle things but you wish that they would be a little more forthcoming i suppose and maybe they will be you know by the even by the time this goes out who knows but so far it's very hedging their bets it seems like
0: number three (laughs) (laughs) Ah, i love this theme do Oh, God, now we're going to get a copyright strike, probably.
1: No. no, it's enough of a cover. It's enough of a cover. We're going to be safe. That
0: was a more free interpretation of this. Of this An thing. acapella. An acapella version, yeah. yeah. I love that theme. It's, of course, the Uncharted theme, because last week I had the opportunity to go to the cinema and see the Uncharted film. And it was really cool. It was fun. It's a perfectly entertaining Hollywood popcorn flick. It's directed by Ruben Fleischer. He made Zombieland and Marvel's Venom. So he's hmm. not like a... He's, he's obviously a skilled director, but he's not like among the high ranks of the exquisite directors on this planet <laughs> but he does a really good job at capturing the spirit of the Uncharted games. There's this intrigue of the treasure hunt, obviously. You find like some kind of documents. And then uh, Nathan Drake, he needs to go on an adventure with his crew. And then they're setting out to an exotic location. And then they need to puzzle their way through some kind of tomb until everything collapses. And an evil guy comes in and is like, ha, And then there's shooting going on and action going on. Very dizzying nauseating action going on that is at the same time impressively <laughs> performed. It's really beautiful. It's a very nice, entertaining film. I feel like
1: most Naughty Dog titles would translate well to a film. I feel yeah. like the tissue is there pretty much.
0: They're making a series out of The Last of Us, aren't they? Oh, are they? I didn't know about that.
1: I mean, that makes total sense. It's ripe for the picking. Yeah, Why not? Well, it's kind of like how Uncharted has a lot of It's roots in Indiana Jones, right? And now there's a movie.
0: Does it it feel like an Indiana Jones movie? It does. It does feel like an Indiana Jones movie. The thing is, it never exceeds the quality of the Indiana Jones movies. This is Mm. kind of the problem. I want to briefly give a positive comment on the cast because I know that the casting choices, some of them were a little bit contested because we've got Tom Holland playing Nathan Drake. He's visually completely different. From the Nathan Drake we see in the games. At the same time, he's very witty, he's very charming. And so he can he can flawlessly carry that role of Nathan Drake, even if he's visually very different. He's also completely buffed though in the film. I was surprised. Oh, was is like, he? Well, Tom Holland is that buffed. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> you don't you don't really see it in Spider-Man, because Spider-Man's yeah. kind of a wiry character anyway.
0: So it is funny to think of Tom Holland as buff. He's super <laughs> strong. And Mark Wahlberg actually plays I'm Sully. About buff. Mm. Yeah, he's also buffed. Although in that film he's less buffed. <laughs> Tom <It's what> Holland <laughs> is. <laughs> he does a really good job at playing Sully. He's also very different visually from what we see in the games, but the dynamic between the two especially between Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg between Nathan Drake and Sully is really charming. Did they
1: purposefully uh make drake and sully younger than their video game counterparts
0: yes because the thing is that this film is clearly the setup for a whole series of films that's what i figured it's an origin story of nathan drake it's an origin story of sully and uh, at the beginning you you might find them barely recognizable but at the end of the film you might think okay so that's nathan drake those are the characters yeah those are they basically become the characters that we know from the games throughout the film, and they do a really good job at accompli- accompanying that development. I also found Chloe Fraser, played by Sophia Ali, uh, very impressive. She's like, uh, she visually resembles Chloe closely, as in she has this kind of seductive beauty about her, and at the same time, she's very fierce. And this goes for the other characters as well. For Tati Gabrielle, she plays an, uh, a villain. She's kind of, you know, that there are always these two villains, one is the the agile one who's actually in combat that's Tati Gabriel and the other one is Antonio Banderas Antonio Banderas kind of is the evil mastermind uh behind behind the entire yeah I'm going to say conspiracy he's the evil guy the ultimate evil guy
1: that's a good fit for him
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. they are, I think there's some complaints that I stumbled upon when I went through the reviews and the discussion of this film that the villains come through as a little bit weak as a little bit bland i think that is to a certain degree true especially of antonio banderas however i also think this the villains are always bland in these stories in in indiana jones you never think like oh uh, this is like a really interesting character (laughs)
1: no it's just it's nazis through and through (laughs) it's
0: it's some kind of old nazi and and here it's like you know this dude who basically has this uh, claim for heritage and yeah he just wants to get his own he just wants to get his money Uh,
1: in stories like that you just need an opposing force who's also trying to get the thing yeah that's it you don't need it to be super compelling i i'm fine with that because indiana jones it's not like he has a deep connection to um in the in Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's not like he's his nemesis is this Nazi character. It's just somebody who's trying to get the
0: Ark, like he is, right? And the thing that they want to get is also a complete MacGuffin. It's like yeah, uh, the thing it exists. This old gold from you know Magellan and how he didn't manage to actually sail around the world, and the, the gold is sunken somewhere, and yeah, so they need to find it, and they go on this lengthy quest eventually as it is always there's no spoiler with it's the case with indiana jones and it's the case with all the uncharted uh, games and stories as well it doesn't it has little consequence it's not like afterwards in the next film they're going to be the rich guys who dominate this empire that they purchased with this fortune no of course it's just to basically propel the story and connect the different scenes of character development and action to some kind of narrative arc and It does a well enough job uh, regarding that. I also found it cool. Two things that I found really nice is the Uncharted theme that I sang at the beginning. It never really plays in the movie to the extent that the games do. Because the games, they always begin with with this like... You know? And it immediately tells you, ah, this is Uncharted. Yeah. With the film, they bring in the theme... And the melody and the harmony of this theme several times in different variations, but it doesn't come to its full fruition. And I think the reason for that is that this is basically, in hindsight, this is going to be seen as like the the origin story. Yeah. And I think that's how they communicate it. And this is really smart, really smart decision. You might say, oh, it doesn't really play the full theme, but ne- not even in the credits, you know, but uh, yeah. At the same time, I think it kind of makes sense because they are not what they are in the games just yet. And the other thing that I found really cool is <laughs> there's, a, there's a pretty funny Easter egg with Nolan North, who's the original voice of Nathan Drake in the games. He appears in the film very briefly. It's not a big spoiler, but he's he ties some references to the game. It's not very subtle. It's not particularly funny. Does he show up as Fat Drake? No. (laughs) Okay. That would have been great. (laughs) That would have been really funny. (laughs) (laughs) No, but he's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I know what you're going through. Something... Oh, okay. So wink and a nod. He could have just turned to the camera and said like, hey, for all of you who played Uncharted, I'm Nolan North. Enjoy the rest of the film. (laughs) I'm Drake in the video game. Goodbye. Yeah, Yeah, this is pretty much much what it is. I think this is going to be a fun series. The reviews from professional critics are pretty much uh, negative. (laughs) There's a lot of remarks, how disappointing, how weak the film is, how it does fall flat when it comes to comparisons to indiana jones this is true of course on the other hand it's not indiana jones it's uncharted and it's going to be a fun franchise that's what i that's what i imagine it to be probably a series of three or four films that they're going to do and they're all going to be watchable and entertaining films
1: yeah as long as they make money they'll keep making them
0: yeah they'll keep making them which brings me to one last brief side quest number four I watched the Sony State of Play from a couple of days ago. And without going into details on the announcements, there was not all that much that was like super fascinating. Uh, I appreciated very much that they went ahead and just announced 50 different Japanese video games. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) At some point, while watching this only 18 to 20 minute long thing, The video games got a little bit blurry in my head as I was not sure anymore which video game trailer I was currently watching. (laughs) (laughs) And I noticed something that I wanted to bring up as a just final note on this show. In these showcases, the trailers that they show of video games are edited so quickly. They have such fast-paced editing that you can't see anything of what's going on in the game. From the beginning to the end of this showcase all I saw were flashing images of at most 0.8 seconds <laughs> in length <laughs> so that I was just like, oh, what's going on? Okay, there's something exploding. Ah, oh, okay, there's a character jumping from somewhere. Okay, there's a flash. Is- this is all that happens. And I just thought, what kind of presentation is this? I feel like it's, it's getting to the
1: point where now, because Nintendo Direct does this a little bit too, where it's almost like, we're not, we don't have a whole lot to show, but we this is our release of what to expect there's there's fifty titles if you're interested in any one of them, you can look it up more thoroughly. but here's our press release for what's coming out so it's not like a deep dive into what's happening. It's not a look
0: at how the game works. It's just, hey, by the way, this is coming out yeah, <laughs> it seems to be yeah you know. it made me nostalgic for the times in which Sony would go to e three and would be like tonight we're gonna show you three video games.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you
0: know? yeah. And we just first we're going to watch 20 minutes of God of War. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Big production. Yeah, big production like a wonderful orchestration taking care of that particular game. I do think that it's fine to show several games and it doesn't need to be as extensive as the highlights on on God of War or something. But what I do miss is a genuine glimpse at the gameplay because if you show me only these short sequences of very few seconds, then I'm going to be suspicious because what you're doing is you're showing it to me so sh- so quickly that I can't fully grasp or ascertain what this is going to be. And it's, it's just like as if you're not confident enough in the material to actually show it. You're just showing it and like, look here, look there. Oh, oh, where is it? You know, it's like, what's the point of this?
1: we live in a world where we always look for the the gameplay in trailers and that's why like it it, it seems like it's so ludicrous <laughs> that it's almost like that's not even what their goal is they're not even trying to the goal isn't even to trick you into seeing what a game might look like you know mistaking a a cinematic for gameplay it's literally just hey it's quarter 2 here's what to expect <laughs> from, from sony <laughs> Uh, you can see that we have games coming out, uh, do your own research. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just tweet a list then,
0: you know, it's like yeah, a release yeah, right? list. <laughs>
1: it's someone, I love, I love the idea that at the, at the Sony building or at the Sony headquarters, they were like, is this the year we just tweet a list? No, we should mm-hmm. We should do something. Put, put a 20 <laughs> yeah, minute video 20, together.
0: <laughs> put a 20 minute minute video together because as long as you show a glimpse of gameplay only for half a second, it's always going to look good. It's always going to look like, okay, there's some kind of movement going on, and that's it already. The best half second of the game. Yes, The only only good half a second in that game. And I think, just please be confident. Actually show us your game. Because the thing is, if your trailer convinces me, because there are lots of explosions that my brain can't comprehend quickly enough, and I just think, "Oh, oh, I have some kind of some kind of association with this I'm going to purchase this game and then I see the gameplay then I'm going to be disappointed you want to show me show me what the game is just play out gameplay if you want to for just like three minutes and then I'll be happy and I can say this looks cool or it doesn't oh my god what I wouldn't give for such a concept of a showcase
1: maybe we'll get there again one day who
0: knows (laughs) Thank you very much for listening to this show. If you want to support us and if you want to support Red Cross Ukraine, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus now. Please visit studyingpixels.com for all kinds of information for all our episodes. Of course, you can reach out to us by going to studyingpixels.com slash contact. And then we're going to see each other again next week. Bye bye. See
1: you then.